Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of The Everyday Millionaire. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by thanking you, the listeners, for your feedback to this podcast as well as remind and even encourage you to continue to send your comments or your suggestions or perhaps any questions that you may have directly to me at my email at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I invite you to rate the show or leave your comments on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app or platform that you're using that works best for you. The feedback is always appreciated. As well, join us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. Okay, so I'm ready to get to work. Today, I am joined by my guest, Rado Steiner. A little bit of background about Rado. He is the co-founder and chief creative officer for InDevelopments, which is a full-service commercial development and construction company, and is known for providing their clients specialty and innovative construction solutions. A long time ago, Rado and his partner, built in developments from an approach that they just commit to their customers to deliver their projects on time, on budget, and a complete turnkey solution. That commitment has resulted in more than $100 million in deals over the past 10 years. I have a number of topics I want to talk to Rado about today, not the least of which is what inspired him to get four university degrees, or how he ended up spending time in an Iranian prison in the early 90s. How about that? So, Rado was born in Switzerland. He has lived in Italy, France, and of course Canada, where he was ultimately raised. He does carry both a Swiss and a Canadian passport. He's traveled some of the world on a leisurely bike tour by himself through 32 countries, covering 34,000 kilometers. And at the end of it, he realized he was now about two years older back in Canada and considering what his next midlife crisis would be. He loves golf, even though his game hasn't improved noticeably in the past 25 years. He owns an Alberta golf course. He's the president of the National Golf Course Owners Association. And he's even met and had dinner with Gary Player, who he says he would never try to beat in a fitness test. Anyways, more on that. On top of golf, he has downhill skied since he was able to walk. He won't step away from an invitation to play Texas Hold'em. Why? Because he's determined to get better at the game so he can eventually play in a World Series of Poker Tournament and not be the first player to get knocked out. And on top of all that, he's a painter of sorts, although he says he's temporarily lost his paintbrushes. Anyway, to quote Rado, he loves golf, but he loves, loves, loves the work 
he does and his team, and he never plans to retire because as he puts it, it's not his work, it's his life. Without any further ado, let's get started with our good friend, Rado Steiner. Rado Steiner, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. You know, I'm sitting here in the poolside studio wishing you were here so that we could quaff a beer on a beautiful day and uh, enjoy this conversation. But I'm here. I'm not quaffing a beer. I'm, I am here just paying attention to you and uh, having this call. So once again, welcome to the show, Rado. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, going through a couple of hours or whatever it is of fun conversation and uh, what life keeps bringing at us. I say this every show that I'm excited to have this particular guest on the show, and I always am. And and for you, one of the re- with you, one of the reasons I'm so excited is because you've got a really interesting history and interesting past. You've got a uber successful business. And I want to talk a little bit about all of those things. I like to always open the show with a fundamental question of, given that many people listening won't know who Rado is and um, what you do, if you were doing the classic elevator pitch, what would you say you do? The elevator pitch. Um, that's a good one. In I love what I do. We are we are in the development business. I'm in the golf business. Um, I love all of my sports. We recently have uh, had a new addition in our life, a two-year-old grandson who's in our permanent care. That's added an element of surprise and uh, some organizational skills that I didn't think I would need again. But uh, other than that, we're having fun here in Calgary. You. You say that you're by the poolside. Today, it's fantastically beautiful. It's going to be 26 degrees here, sunny. Um, everybody wanted to drag me out golfing this afternoon. Instead, I have to do this interview. So. Oh, oh, my gosh. You're taking one for the team. I'm stretching our friendship, you know, giving up a golf game. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for that. Hey, well, listen, that's uh, that's great. That's uh, an elevator pitch with a lot of questions and a lot of uh, uh, insights that uh, I want to go down and, and talk about. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, let's just talk briefly about in developments. You know, you have a great business. You've, you know, you've had it for a number of years. I believe you're second generation, as I recall. And you're very successful in the commercial building uh, world. But give me a little bit about what you do specifically. And, uh, and, then, and then we're going to take a dive into that. Sure. In Developments is a full service company. Uh, it's been around now for 12 years. Um, but I've had several other development companies, and I am second generation. My father was in the development business as uh, CEO of Atco Development, which unwound uh, quite a few years ago. Um, lots and lots of stories that we can that we can talk about, even around that, because I used to work for him when uh, when he was running running Atco Development. Um, we basically specialize in commercial development. We've actually starting to diverge now and moving into a bunch of other things. Given where the economy has been at in the last few years, we've had to be creative in order to, uh, um, I wouldn't say keep the lights on, but certainly to keep business flowing and moving. So we're doing a lot of First Nations housing right now. Um, we've we've just finished a contract with a band in, uh, in northern Alberta. We're doing another uh, two contracts with uh, with a band in uh, Invermere, BC. 
and we've got several others that we're working on. So that's become uh, almost a, I won't say a side business, but it's becoming a, a relevant part of our company. Is that a single family or is that uh, multi-residential? What, what kind of building are you doing? It's a little bit of both. Um, we're doing some single family and we're doing a lot of, uh, we're calling them anywhere from duplexes to sixplexes. That's the largest that they typically are, are looking for. And most of that's being driven by Indian and Northern Affairs saying we will fund things, but only if they're multifamily. So in their mind, a duplex, you and I wouldn't call that multifamily, but in their mind, that's the definition of, a, of multifamily. So, and this came out of, uh, and this this is kind of just the innovation of sales and and you getting out and you know getting creative with the powers that be to subsidize yeah. a a business or to grow a business in a in a tough economy that we've all been uh, dealing with over the past two or three years, especially in Alberta, well, particularly Alberta. And part of it spun out of a company that we started about a year ago. Uh, in Green Systems is a SIP panel manufacturer. So SIP is a structurally insulated panel. Um, it's a system that uh, that's used, it's been around for a long, long time. Canadians have been a bit slow in adopting it, but that system allows you for a much more energy efficient envelope. And that's something, and it's also far more resilient, it's stronger, uh, it's mold resistant. So it's fitting a lot of the parameters that the First Nations are looking for in terms of execution of a better quality product. Traditionally, they've, they've been under a lot of stress to build housing for them, but the budgets don't allow them to build something very well. So it doesn't last very long. They have a, a terrible um, situation where most of these houses don't last a decade. Wow. It just doesn't work for them. So we've, we've got a product now that we feel that will start to last longer than that traditional track record that they have so uh, that's where we're starting to see traction is is on that front it's very it becomes very energy efficient we have a little sample home uh, the plant is in in red deer alberta and uh, we have a little sample home there it's only 600 square feet but we had quite a cold winter this year uh, it's just on electric heat it's costing us 30 bucks a month to heat this thing yeah, and given the scope of listeners on this call, when we're talking cold, we're talking you know minus thirty, uh, yeah. you know C, you know Celsius in the winter in uh, right. in Red Deer. So that kind of even though it's six hundred square feet, that's a pretty economic way to heat a home yeah. or to keep it heated. It's it's not our traditional business. Our traditional business has been commercial. We do light industrial, we do office buildings, and we do retail spaces. Uh, we've typically condominiumized all of that, and we sell it. That's still a main component of our business. We still have a lot of product on the ground and or planning more of it. But this has become, this has almost grown into something. I would say it's representing, oh gosh, right now, if I did, did rough math, 20% 20, 20 of our business and growing. Wow. Now, I'm going to go down this path for a little bit because it's just I'm finding it quite interested in the conversation having, you know, know you and you've been on the rain stage a number of times and you're very skilled at what you do. The question I, that comes up for me in all of this, just from a business model, is that I know that you, one of the big key differences for your business that you pride yourself on is not only the quality of work you do, but that you do what you say you're going to do and you deliver on time. Now, yeah. I haven't had a 
lot of experience with government or First Nations, but I have a little bit of experience and know people who do. So my question to you is that are you finding it a little frustrating to work with bureaucracy and a culture that's not really known for urgency in what they do and how they do it? Or how is that for you? I'm just really interested in that. Well, there's a bit of history uh, behind this. Um, Back in the mid-90s to late-90s, I was already doing work with First Nations up in the Invermere Valley. We did about 60 duplexes for them in a different format. What we did is, and this, this, I I don't know how deep we want to go into the story, but what First Nations can do is they can designate land with a 99-year lease. You have quite a bit of this in BC and then the Vancouver area. Where, where you've got um, other than First Nations living there. So they're leasing this land for up to 99 years. We built a full 18-hole resort golf course on this uh, 300, and it's about 400 acres that we designated. So I'm used to working with the bureaucracy, with First Nations, with, with the habits. Um, is it easier? Absolutely not. It is it, um, Indian and Northern Affairs has got certain rules that nobody else really plays by, but they're their rules, and we understand that we have to play by them. Whatever they are, certainly not throwing them under the bus. They, they have a process. First Nations, I think, in a lot of cases, get a bad rap in, in the media because the media doesn't report it properly. They have a system that they have to go through, and that system doesn't work very well in what I'll call the normal economy, if that's, a, if that's an appropriate way of putting it. We know what to do. We know who to contact, and we know how to, to deal with this. They also like to see the opportunity for First Nations, their band members, to, to participate in this and to learn and to get an education. So we make that part of the program so that they're actually involved. Well, that's just great. I mean, that's cool. I, I think that, you know, for me, as I listen to it, and, you know, what I'm really intrigued by is the fact that, you know, you looked at the opportunity you decided to play a game and uh, the game is working with the provincial government and First Nations. And that's all great, by the way, but you're not trying to change and make the rules that you have to play by wrong. You're actually embracing it. And I think that's just a great, you know, overall way to success is that, you know, play the game the way that it has to be played. And sometimes it works to change the rules. And and there's other times where, you know, don't beat your head against the wall, you know, saddle up and yeah. play by those rules and, and you'll do well and, yeah. and you're obviously doing well. So congratulations on that. And we're, edu- we're educating them along the way too, sure. especially because a lot of First Nations don't know how to do this to begin with. Yeah. Um, we have one group that, that hasn't built a new house in the, in the last 25 years. Right. So they're still learning on, on what and how and, you know, I mean, what are the specs that we need to have? What are the, you know, what are we looking for here? How do I, you know, we're handholding them as we go through this, not making them feel bad about it, but giving them the tools. So at the end of the day, they know what they have and they know how to work through this process. But that's a kind of a part of your culture and a part of who you are and your businesses, who your team is. I mean, you're, you're built to work with your clients in that capacity. You're, you know, that's part of your commitment is around the education and around disclosure and around the relationship right. that you want to have. It's a long-term thing for you. And and I know that, that you take a lot of pride in that. So 
That's cool. Great. Well, thanks for that update. But I want to, okay, I want to go back. I mean, that was interesting kind of segue or not even a segue. It was a, a bit of a yeah, rabbit hole, yeah. given what I want to talk to you about to start with, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I want you to give me a little bit of background on, you know, I was, of course, doing a little bit of research and things I wanted to talk to you about. And I come across this, uh, you know, website about us and who you are. And that was very interesting. So, you're co-founder, of course, and you're the chief creative officer uh, for InDevelopments. So tell me about your four university degrees. What are they? You're <laughs> smart. You've got to be a smart uh, guy if you got four degrees. Holy well, cow. you know, sometimes that, that's all relative, right? Street smarts <laughs> sometimes can be far more valuable than, uh, than the education. Yeah. Um, I'll go back even a little bit further than that. My, we came to Canada in 1958. My sister, my mother, and I came in November of 1958. My dad came about six months earlier. He came to Canada with a grade seven education and retired as one of the directors of, uh, I think, one of Canada's more successful companies, ATCO. may not be as familiar with them in, in BC as we are here in Alberta, but I think everybody here in Alberta knows who ATCO is. Yeah. Um, got very fortunate with, with all of that. and. If there's one thing that my father, he's passed away now about five years ago. If there's one thing that he always insisted on, given his background, he says, it's just going to make your life easier if you get that education as to what you want to do, how you want to do it. So answering your first question, I've got a BSc in geography. I've got a, a BSc in engineering technology. I've got a master's in architecture with an honors degree. And I've got an MBA from uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Wow, that's pretty impressive. I got to tell you, that's cool. And then, of so, course, you've got a lot of years of street smarts to uh, to you know to add to, to all back of it that. up. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, where did I'm sorry? Where did your where did you immigrate from, or where did your parents come? Switzerland. Uh, from Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. So, yeah. do you still have family back in Switzerland? Are your we still have quite a bit. He was the youngest of nine kids, so a lot of the the uncles, aunts, and grandparents have all have all passed away. The Swiss are good Catholics. They like big families. So once again, as I kind of went around this, uh, you went around, you had a, a crazy trip around the world and uh, along the way you got thrown in jail. You uh, did a bike, big, long bike tour. You know, that's an interesting time in your life. You were, uh, I'm assuming, a relatively young man during, you know. Uh, yeah, relative to where I am today. It was, <laughs> we were uh, all young that relative to today. Yes. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. Mid thirties. Yeah. Um, I had just sold a company that I'd started in Switzerland at the time. I've, this was after I finished my MBA, and um, decided uh, I went down to northern Italy. I had some friends that had a a little vacation villa outside of Torino, Italy, and um, was painting. Was um, I'm an artist uh, as well. Uh, and I haven't picked up the brushes in a long, long time, which is uh, my own fault, no one else's. Decided from that point, you know, they had a whole library of National Geographics going back 70 or 80 years that I would that I would delve into every now and then. I said, you know what? I've got no commitments. I'm going to take my time. And I bought a bike, bought some panniers, and said, I'm going to do a trip around the world and see this rather than read about it. And Two years later, I finished back in this little village in uh, northern Italy, was handed the keys to the city, 
when I got back. Wow. I had literally, I had set it up so that uh, I would send postcards to the small uh, bar that was in this, in this village town. And so everybody kind of had uh, a place to go and see what was happening. I was, I was kind of the, uh, the honorary citizen of Bricorazio. And when I got back, I had literally, they had a, I mean, for us, the town couldn't have been more than 5,000 people, but I, I was celebrated when I got back. They couldn't believe that I actually did this trip. It's 32 and a half thousand kilometers, give or take through 32 countries, most of them third world countries, anything from, um, I never went, uh, south of the equator. Everything was in the Northern hemisphere, but that's already a pretty comprehensive, uh, <laughs> trip. If you want to put it that way for two, <laughs> two years, it wasn't a race. It, it was, it was about seeing the world and getting a different perspective on, on what we as a global community do. And, and that's helped me tremendously from, from that point forward in, in respecting people in terms of, of just getting, getting a general sense of what needs to be done or how you, how you handle people or, you know, even back to First Nations. We, one of the things we don't understand as Canadians is just how good we have it. Mm. It's one of the best. It is the best place in the world to live. And no matter what they take away from us, we are still far better off than most people uh, in, in, the, in the world today. You know, that's an interesting kind of topic, just, you know, not to go too far off tangent. Um, do, you, do you think you appreciated it back when you were that young, just how amazing it is to be in Canada? Uh, not as much as I do uh, after the trip. Yeah. It's interesting that I find that as I've gotten... You know, I've gotten a little bit older, the appreciation I have for some of the things that we take as normal and uh, realizing that it's not normal. You know, I, you know, the other day I'd worked really hard and I went and, you know, just was sweaty and dirty. I'd been out in the yard and having fun and doing all the things I was doing. And I went and took a shower. And in that moment, I, I, I it hit me differently. It's like, wow, I get to enjoy a shower that feels great. Yeah. And you know, here I am showering in water that people don't even have enough to drink. And so it was just yeah. that moment of gratitude and realization that Canada is pretty darn amazing. So anyways, yeah. that was my realization around that. But take me back a little bit, uh, Rado, because, you know, you, you made a comment that after you graduated school, you sold a business or or is that what well, I heard I, you say? I graduated, yeah, I graduated from my MBA yeah. uh, and then started a, a business. At the time, it was a, a, a computer-aided design business because uh, it was the, the North America was far, far ahead of uh, of Europe when it came to computer technology, and and so I had started a business there. And then somebody, uh, this was in Lausanne, Switzerland. Somebody in Basel had caught wind of it, wanted to expand it and make and bring it sort of across Switzerland. I wasn't committed to anything. I had uh, just broken up with a girlfriend uh, that was living in Paris. And then at that point, I said, okay, well, let's sell the business and see what I do next. Uh, they offered me a good number for it. And I said, okay, it's time to go on. And, and I, I never plan on retiring. Uh, my, my objective has always been to have sabbaticals along the way. So that became one of my sabbaticals because I had no other commitments, no other ties, I had some money in the in the bank, and I decided, okay, let's do a trip around the world. That's cool. Tell me a little bit about the entrepreneurial 
spirit that you that you have now you went to school and so education was a big part of it but do you think that you always had that drive to be an entrepreneur business guy yeah um, I, and i think it comes really from from my upbringing yeah. and what we did because my dad started his first business um when it took a couple of years from from the time he arrived in canada but he started his first business and he never looked back he was successful all the time in in just trying things. That, that I think that's that's where where most people fail or struggle is is they're too scared to try things. And if there's one thing I learned from my dad, he never ever said no to something. There's stories that I can tell you. You know, uh, I, I remember he he and and High Eisenstadt High's restaurant. Uh, we're good buddies. He, my dad had built all of the highs interiors for all of them across the country and in the U.S. Um, at the time. I one day calls him up and says, I got this piece of land in Langley. We need to buy it. My dad goes, okay. This was September of whatever year it was. It was back in the 70s. In, in the spring, he goes, you know what? Hi, I really should see this land that we bought. <laughs> okay, no problem. We, they go out there. Half of it's underwater. <laughs> All right. Oops. So they're going, what on earth did we do here? I'm using proper language. Yes, that's yes. Not the, well done. They, they didn't, he didn't quite put it mm-hmm. that way. He was, he was pretty direct on his feelings. Not three months later, somebody comes and says, hi, I'd like to buy half of the property that you have out there in Langley. Hi calls my dad up and my dad goes, yeah, sure. The piece that's still above water. He goes, no, he wants to buy the piece that's underwater. So my dad goes out to Vancouver. They meet with this guy. At the end, he's a cranberry farmer. He's just gotten a license, a quota increase on his license. He needs more land so he can. And he needs so water. He for, <laughs> and they make the deal. They're they're now they're they're they have no more no more cash tied up in this deal. At the end of it, my dad looks at High and goes, "What are cranberries?" <laughs> he didn't know what cranberries. He's from Switzerland. We don't. We don't have turkey. We don't. Uh, so, right. Priceless. But he didn't care. He goes. So it's it's that ambition of saying, okay, well, let's do it. See where it takes us. Right. You know, there was there was never any fear in him, sort of making a quick decision and or saying, okay, well, let's try that. He's done so many of those deals over the years, and that's what I learned from him. Is you, you got to do deals in order to be in business. You got to you got to be in business to to do business. Right. That's the only way that it works. Uh, how was your mom around all of that? Oh, she was, she was, I mean, she was great with it. Yeah. Was it, was right? it, how did they bring you up differently? Like, so you had dad entrepreneur say yes to everything. Did you, was there a, a fundamental difference in how your mom's philosophy was and what she kind of fed you and how she brought you up? Yeah. She, she was the artist of the family. She mm. was very creative. She did a, a ton of work in the community uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. She never had a she never had a full-time job, but she was always active. She used to be a part of the it's the Layton Center here in in uh, the Calgary area. So at one point she had uh, looms and she could basically shear a sheep, wash it, spin it, dye it, and make you a rug all <laughs> by herself. That's great. Isn't right? that something? Hey. So yeah. Those are great stories of our parents that we bring forward in our lives, right? Get yeah, to share with our children, grandchildren. I, I love that yeah. stuff. So along the way, now, did you would you say that 
you know, as, as you grew as an entrepreneur and your relationship with your parents seemed, you know, seems as if it was quite close. Was your dad really supportive of how you went off into business? Did you work with him for a time? We did work together for quite a number of years. Uh, the first couple of years were were probably tougher when we uh, we had we were doing a development in Airdrie, which is just north of Calgary. It was uh, half a section of land. It would have it. It was um, designed to have over a thousand homes, two school sites, a senior citizen facility, and an eighteen-hole golf course. And at the time, the city of Airdrie was going to build it. Uh, they decided that they don't want to be in the golf business, so we ended up building it and owning the the uh, the golf operations. And um, those first couple of years were a little difficult because we weren't. We were still trying to figure out how we were doing things. I was trying to be, you know, the guy that's going to lead this stuff. And uh, and he had, certainly he had the experience. I, I didn't have the experience. He had far more experience than I did. But he let me do a lot more things than he probably normally would do with, with uh, just a normal employee. And so in the end, he basically said, you did things that I never would have done but you always accomplished what you said you were going to do. So I let, I kept letting you do what you said you were going to do. Cause from there we migrated up to Invermere and built an eight at the Eagle ranch uh, golf course up there, which is another 18 hole facility. Uh, we ended up selling that one to, uh, to somebody that, uh, to the group that had silver tip in, uh, in Canmore. And, uh, and so that deal kind of, it did what it did, but we still have the course in Airdrie. We've had it now for almost 30 years. We built that one in 1989, and uh, it's it's been a going concern ever since. Okay, so you worked with your dad, and he was obviously supportive of what the stuff that you were doing. Now, did you just get passionate about the business of development, or were you passionate about business, or what was kind of your driver for going into this you just you just followed that and it, you happened to like it tell me a little bit about that when i was nine years old i knew what i wanted to do quit it why is it that you know some you know well how do people do that so that's cool okay sorry to interrupt but tell me about that that just always I, blows I, my mind I'm, I'm walking around our community where we live and okay. i'm looking at the houses and i'm going we can do a better job than this <laughs> that cracks me up i'm not kidding and, and my dad kind of looked at me funny and he goes, yeah, you're right. We could. And part of it had to do with, because we had already gone back to Switzerland several times to visit family and, and uh, relatives there. And so you saw what you saw in Switzerland and you came back here and you went, oh my God, you know, it's cookie cutter. It's, uh, it, it's, it, it has no passion with and at nine years old i already figured that out no creativity so, so hence the masters yeah. it was a master's in architecture yeah yeah so you're kind of you were wired that way right basically out of the yeah. shoot yeah cool good for you yeah. so when did uh how, how how did your dad kind of nurture you along in in terms of his mentorship and his guidance in business you know what were some of the what was some of the way that he worked with you in you know, because I, I think about some of our listeners that I know and would actually have sons like you that they would want in their business. And and if you were sharing something along the lines of, you know, how your dad was and what was great about the lessons he taught you, what would you, is there any something you would share about that? Well, I, I think ultimately, um, because at one point, 
he pushed me to be in engineering rather than architecture. Um, I didn't want to be in engineering. I ultimately did get an engineering degree, but it wasn't until I got into architecture that I got the, the confidence and the passion to be doing it and knowing that the engineering would actually supplement or help what I was doing as an architect. So lots of times what you do is you try and push your kids in a direction that they don't want to go in. As soon as I realized, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do what I need to do. And in the end, I'll get to where you want me to be, but you have to let me make the decision how to get there. And, and sometimes the marriage just doesn't, sometimes it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I think we were lucky in that sense that uh, once I got into architecture, I just, I excelled. I literally did my engineering degree and my architecture degree simultaneously. I did them at the same time. Most people would think that's, that's suicide, mm-hmm. but I was so into it and, and so ready to do it all because I'm now doing what I really wanted to do, which was, was architecture. I don't do the architecture today. I still do the first cut of, of what we do from a designs perspective, but I'm not, I'm not stamping drawings. I'm not the architect ultimately that will execute on our, on our projects, but I have enough of experience and I have enough commonsensical decision-making to allow the process to come together really well. And that's why we're always on time and on budget with our projects is because between myself and my partner, who's really, really good at the construction side, we can deliver what we say we're going to deliver. Where in all of this does uh, how you make money and your attachment to generating revenue, or did you also, along with the passion for and the and the vision for, you know, doing buildings better and all of the things that, were, were you operating on top of, I just want to make a lot of money, or how, how do you hold that? Because you're, you've, been very, very successful in your business and financially, and we all go through ups or ups and downs in business, of course, but what drives you or what drove you back then around the dollars and cents of how you would monetize all that you've learned and you were doing? I don't, I don't know that it was the monetary side that drove me. It was doing good projects, executing them well, delivering, uh, maintaining our integrity in terms of of the, the quality of the product. Uh, sometimes you have to make decisions that, that don't make you money uh, just because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and so those aren't that easy to do, but it, I think it's worse if you decide not to do it right. You, now you've made a mistake and recovering from those mistakes is far more costly than just doing it right in the beginning. So you lose a little bit of money on a project or you don't make quite as much money. Your integrity carries you much, much further in business in the long term. If you do, if you take that approach over, well, we're just going to not worry about it. Or, or you, you know, some people can just ignore the problem and hope that it goes away. Well, they don't, you know, you have to deal with them and you, and you have to be able to make sure that what you've executed on is what you would want if it were your project. So we don't try and sell something that somebody doesn't want either. That's, that's really important is that they have, they have to sort of feel the same passion that we do with our product and what we do, because they ultimately will own it. So reputation for you is, is probably one of your highest values based on 100%. what you've just said. 100%. And I think, 
in any successful business that at some level has to always be, I, you know, I, I think about the phone industry, you know, and they don't seem to care what their reputation is because they're constantly getting trashed about just how bad customer service is. But in the world that you live in, in a construction business where, like you say, that your actual reputation lives on in the product you produce yeah. called a building. Yeah. And yeah. so it becomes really paramount and something to consider. Well, you know, it, in, and I like to be able to, what, what's also part of parcel to that is if it's not a win-win, then it's never going to be successful either. Both sides of the project have to be able to say, yeah, that's, then there's give and take. Then, then you're not relying on a contract and the words of a contract. Because we do this all the time. We, we basically say, look, yeah, we'll put the contract together. You get your lawyers to review it, et cetera. But, but we're clear in also saying, unless we have a relationship, the contract that we have here doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. right? We, we have to, the building industry is unique in that it's got a lot of moving parts. And so as you're building, you're realizing, oh man, we didn't figure out how to actually build or design or do that, or there's a code issue or there's something, you know, and so we, we always try and or if they want to make changes, we always try and move through the process together rather than here's what you're going to get, take it or leave it. That's what the contract says. And don't fuss or fight on us. That's what you're going to get. That doesn't help your credibility or your reputation at the end of the day. So we try and create these win-win situations where Hey, look, that's not working for you. Let's figure out how we do it. Maybe it's going to cost you a little bit more money. Maybe it's not. But we're not there to, I mean, it's it's not uncommon in the industry to basically say, we're going to low bid this contract because we know there's going to be a ton of extras. Right. We've never done that. We will never do that. We know what it needs. It's our, it's our job to know what we have to do to execute on a project and deliver what we promised we'd deliver. End so that, of story. And that's clearly a stand that we, you know, that you take in what your business is and what you're going to be. So that's either going to work for your clients or it's not. And obviously this many years later, it's worked. Now, when you go back in that kind of philosophy, was it something that you grew into? Was it something that you came to a realization around? Or do you think it just was how you're built given your upbringing? I think my dad would have been, was, not would have, he was the same way. That's (laughs) the way he functioned. That's the way we operated on everything. Uh, you, you can't win every single one, but the, the purpose and the, the mission was to, to make sure that, that everybody came out of it. It's, it's funny. There's so many people that I still run, run into today goes, Oh, Steiner, Steiner, was your dad auto? And, and immediately the conversation sure. goes from, <laughs> goes from there. He goes, yeah. what an incredible man. What an incredible you know, the stories still continue today as to his reputation and his credibility. If I don't stand behind that and, and be part of that, then then I'm not doing myself a favor. Never mind my father. Yeah. So was there, you know, let's go back a little bit. You know, was there a particular fork in the road at any time in your life that you had to kind of choose a direction that you can reflect on today and go, man, I could have, you know, I could have been a dentist or I, you know, I could have been on the streets, you know, if I wouldn't have made these decisions. Do you, do you reflect that way? Do you see a time where you had to make a tough decision or you had a choice and you took whatever road you took for the reason you took it? Good question. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously that trip around the world was, was one of those forks. 
Sure. Where I basically, I basically said, okay, well, if I'm going to do what I'm, what I say, which is I'll take sabbaticals along the way. And I mean, that one changed how I thought and what I, how I saw the world like nothing else. There are people back then when I made the decision to do this, that thought I was absolutely insane. Sure. Today, those today, those same people are going, I wish I had your foresight and did what you did. Because when you're young and you've got the energy and that your health is, I mean, my health is, is, is good today. Could I do a trip around the world on a bicycle for two years? I'm going to say, yeah, but it might not be quite as easy <laughs> as it was 30, 30 some years ago. Right. Well, I mean, you got to think about the experience and what you learned in that two years, 32 countries, the people you met. Now, you took that trip alone and just met people along the way. Was that the whole idea behind yeah. it? Yeah. I did it alone for a couple of reasons. One, if you're going to do something like that, it was not easy. You're going to have to be with somebody that really knows you and that you can really get along with. Uh, secondly, I didn't mind doing it alone because it forced you to get out and meet people mm -hmm. um, to really interact as opposed to kind of being with somebody and, and sticking with them. I, I think that like there was no, there, there's no caravan behind me and it was a one man show for almost two years uh, through some pretty interesting territories. I was in uh, uh, at the time, Ecuador was under military regime. You had to there was they had curfews. They had soldiers on most street corners with guns. Uh, I was in uh, Pakistan trying to go through Afghanistan. Uh, which never really did come together because I had a visa to be in Russia. Uh, I tried to go around Afghanistan into Iran. That's where I got arrested because I have a Swiss and a Canadian passport. Try and get back up into Russia. That never, never came together. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, <laughs> let's go back. Okay, and that's where I got arrested. And then I was like this. Okay, so come on. Tell me about the arrested. What happened? Well, they just, when you check into whatever, they're not hotels there. This is like a little hospice. You have to give them their passport. They keep it overnight. When you leave again, they give it back to you. I, they had a common shower down the hallway. I came back from my shower and uh, there's two police guys going through all of my stuff. And they, one of them's got, uh, so I would have given them, I believe at the time I would have given them because the Swiss were not getting along with the Iranians. So I went in with a, Canadian passport and Canadian visa. And the, the fellow had my Swiss passport in his hand going, what's this? And I go, well, it's my Swiss passport. And, he's, and then he goes, and what about this? And I go, well, that's my Canadian passport. <laughs> You're a spy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's pretty much what they did. So mm -hmm. they held me, they held me uh, in a prison for about four days until they uh, finally realized, okay, well, He's a Canadian born in Switzerland and he's legally able to have both passports. Um, it's, I, I'm going to say mentally that was as draining as any moment on that entire trip. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot of it isn't necessarily physical. It's about your mental capabilities. You, you get mentally tired and that's when, when cycling 10 kilometers feels like you've just done 200 kilometers. That was one of those times where once I got out of that prison, because they they would literally, uh, and I, you have to you have to appreciate the context. I understood where they were coming from. They were trying to show that they were the authority. They put me up against a wall, 
and pointed a gun at my, and we don't do that. Right. And you don't play around with pointing a gun at somebody here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of things, once I, once I was released and out of there, they, they had torn up all my journals. I had uh, lots of, back then, we're, we're not digital back then, uh, it's cameras with film. They had taken all my film and, and pulled it out of the exposed containers, it. Yeah, exposed it. So I had, had no really, re- no real good record of, of any of that part of my uh, Iranian trip. And physically, it was it wasn't bad. They didn't feed you when you're when you're cycling like that. You're I'm trying to consume about ten thousand calories a day just to keep my body weight. I mm-hmm. probably weighed 120 pounds through most of that trip. And when all they're feeding you is rice and, and tomatoes, it's not enough calories. So so there was some there there, there was a few days of recovery after that uh, four day stint in a in an Iranian prison. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, mindset or, or the mental challenges that you faced in prison, but on the bike trip overall, I mean, of course, in life and in business, you know, that mental fortitude is, you know, and, and the development of what we're able to handle mentally is a big part of it. Do you think that that trip, you learned a lot about yourself and what you're capable of mentally, emotionally? Oh, 100%. You, so you, yeah. you carry that oh. forward? even in today. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's an interesting one that, that I still carry with me today, which is if you're having a really, really bad day and there was, there was lots of them on the trip, it would be amazing what could happen the day after something. It, it can be the littlest of things that just changes that, that whole negative uh, situation that you might've had or the struggle um, and, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I can go on again. It, and, and you have to, and that's where, when people get frustrated, you know, the road rage, the, the, the this, you got to just be able to stop, take a deep breath and go, it's not that bad and it will get better. It will improve. It might not be right now, but you just got to be a little bit patient. And at some point you'll see that turn around and it will, tr- it can turn around dramatically. It can be all of a sudden like, holy cow, this is amazing. All of a sudden, I've come on to something—a beautiful landscape, or or just some wonderful people that say, "Hey, what are you doing?" They hear your story and they say, "Well, you're staying with us for the next two days. You're our guest, right?" I mean, I had countless encounters like that. But then you get the other side, which is you've just spent four days in an Iranian prison. The the guys are trying to be tough guys, and and uh, you know, emotionally, it sucks you completely dry for for four or five days after that. Hmm. So you bring that forward into your life. Now, you, I know that you've done a lot of work. Well, I, I, I don't want to say it that way. You, on an ongoing basis, have worked on your own personal professional development, defining yourself, looking at who you are being and how you're being. Where I know you today, to the degree I know you, you've done a lot of work on just who you are, your personal development, professional development. What kind of triggered that was for me was your story just around once again that mental attitude because as we talk in this podcast and listeners you know respond or have conversations with me or reach out to me there's often the question of you know how important is that mental development so the mindset part of success i guess maybe that's really the question for you given all the work you've done and where you've come from how important is the mindset and the mental aspect of your success in business 
Yeah, it it a hundred percent it is. Um, I, I think I mentioned earlier that I never plan on retiring, and so part of that is always continuing to excel or to expand my my base of knowledge and my experience. I, I mean, it's 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 nowhere near where it could be. Uh, I, I think anybody that thinks that they've reached some pinnacle uh, in their life and that's it doesn't see far enough past that. In my mind, I, there, there's so much to learn. There's so many things to do, even if it weren't in the development business. I mean, I'm passionate about education. I'm passionate about healthcare. I'm passionate about a dozen other things. If I had 50 hours in a day, those are the things that I'd be exploring. I can't. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm focused on certain things, and I love doing those things. But as part of expanding who I am and what I what I my knowledge base and my skill set, though those are the things that drive me and wake me up every morning, um, excited to to come to work and to and to do things. The whole green movement is another big one, right? In in Canada, um, we're going to be on the leading edge of that. I want to talk a little bit about that, but tell me a little bit about, have you, do you feel like you've faced a lot of adversity or some big adversity in your life, in business, personally, professionally, or, and how do you deal with, you know, when you're having a bad day, when things are just hitting the fan, kind of, how do you deal with that? Uh, I still, I still, the glass for me is always half full, hmm. regardless of, of what, uh, and, and in all fairness, uh, this comes back to the statement earlier. We live in one of the greatest places in the world. If we had nothing, we're still better off than most people in the world. So you have to, if you look, if you take that approach, there is no such thing as adversity. I have people in our office. I tell them we don't have a problem. We have a, we have to, we have to, we have to have a solution to a problem. Don't bring me problems. Bring me solutions to problems. Mm -hmm. Problems don't really exist. Just solutions. Come with a solution, and you'd be surprised how people go. You know, I've never thought of it that way. I just always worry about the problem. I go, yeah, worry about this. What's the solution to the problem? Then you will get past the problem because people literally will freeze up and kind of kind of go, I don't know how to do What am I going to do? This is a big problem. I go, no, it's not a big problem. Think about what the solution is. You know, you're talking about a team that is bringing you solutions rather than problems. That's a training thing. How are you in terms of developing your team and your business? Is that a, a big focus for you? Do you see the relevance of that? How much time and energy do you put into developing your team and your business? I probably don't spend as much time as as we could or should. What I'd like to do is, is allow them to be free to do what they think is the right way to do it and then come back and say, hey, how did that work or or you know, uh, I've got a manager at the golf course, uh, the, the first couple of years, I gave him pretty much free reign, let him figure it out, let him experiment, let him do the things that today he's, he's totally capable of handling pretty much any situation that comes his way because I let him do it from the beginning. And, and I think my father did the same thing. You still kind of have to, you know, you, you check you're looking over their shoulder a little bit just to make sure that the whole thing doesn't implode on you. But for the most part, we give everybody a lot of freedom to do what we're hoping that they're capable of doing. Now that also stems from making sure, I guess you're hiring relatively or very highly qualified people. You know, there's such an important aspect of building a team and businesses and 
I see that, you know, I know what I've done myself in business in terms of building teams. You know, I like the team to be a reflection of, you know, the core belief and the core mission of the, of the business and to own it and be part of the creation of it. But in the doing this of it, have the skills. Now you're obviously on the skill side of it. You're also hiring, you know, skilled people that are very qualified to do the job that you're giving them to do. Yeah. Well, we've had people here that have been here um, for 20 years. Right. Uh, and so, or that have been working with me for 20 years, not necessarily in the same company in mm-hmm. developments has only been around for a dozen years, but a lot of those same people have come with me from one business to the next business. So uh, there's been some continuity there. And, and I think that's incredibly important. Um, if you can keep that, there are a lot of times where we could have uh, over the years said, okay, well, we're going our separate ways. Um, I would always make an effort to make sure that I kept the team intact. Culturally, I would suggest that when we hire new hires that we have now, the most important part of it is that they fit with everyone else. I, I don't think that's a, that's probably not a very good description of what we look for, but with everybody has common interests, even outside of what we do here at the office, that helps more than the skill set that they might have coming in. Um, we work as a team, and therefore there are no superstars. Everybody does what needs to be done to get the job done. And that, in its own right, means that we that we do things, like we do things outside of work on a normal basis. We, we'll, we'll go skiing, we'll go to the, to the restaurant or to the bar after work, or everything that we do here, there are no hours, we have no set hours. People are in here on a Saturday and a Sunday without any problem if something needs to get done. And that's as important as, as the skill set that we hire for. So when I've talked to other business owners, you know, it's interesting you make a point is that as much as you're hiring skill, first and foremost on your list of things to consider is character. You know, once again, interests, who they are, how they're showing up. You know, if they have the fundamental skills, we can train even further on that and develop that. But it's very difficult to, it's almost impossible to shift character of who they're being and how they show up. So that's your focus in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And there we've, we've made the wrong hires before, but within two months, we know. Right. We just know that they're not going to be a fit. Next part of that is hire slow, fire fast. A little bit. Yeah, I guess you got to be cut cut it loose, right, if it's the wrong decision, because sometimes that happens. So, okay, so tell me a little bit more about, okay, so we look at Rado and the business that you've built. You're not alone. You've uh, got a lovely wife. How long have you been married? Uh, We've only been married. uh, We'll be on six years this year. Right. Um, I've known her since uh, 2000, yeah, 2000, actually. Right. Uh, She's from Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. Came to Calgary on uh, the opportunity of a job because Sault Ste. Marie didn't have a lot of opportunities. She had a uh, a daughter who at the time would have been five years old. They took the bus to Calgary, landed at the Alba River Casino, and uh, had a job there. She thought she had uh, she thought she'd made the biggest mistake of her life because at that at that point it was still the old Elbow River Casino, but she's never looked back. So. How big a role do you find that, you know, a significant other has made and been part of your ongoing success? Oh, gosh. I mean, just the relationship that we've had has been fun. It's it's huge to uh, to making 
life exciting, um, allowing us to both explore things. Uh, she never had the opportunity to travel like we have. Uh, now that we have a two-year-old, that that's sort of disappeared again. And we're hoping that uh, as he gets a little bit older, we're just going to have to bring him along and uh, he's going to have to be, you know, dragged along kicking and screaming and seeing the world like we do. That's a, and that was a bit of a curveball for you. So you talk about hurdles and maybe I don't want to call it adversity, but you know, certainly life happens, you know, we make plans and life happens. And your two-year-old came from a, an adoption process from a daughter. Yes. And there's, there's some complicated circumstances around it. We'll, we'll stay away from that. But, uh, the whole idea is that uh, we have a grandson in our care now, and he's doing well. He's doing very well. And tell me a little bit about, you know, if you if you could look at, you know, some of the your philosophy around what creates and drives success for you over the years, Rado, and you know, something that listeners that you would really want people to consider looking at for themselves. You know, what what could you share in that regard? What what shows up for you in in some of your fundamental philosophy of doing what you say you're going to do, create win-win scenarios, you know, those have those great relationships. What about how you show up? I, I think most, most people know when they're doing the right thing and in their gut, they know when they're doing the wrong thing. And if there's any hesitation, if there's some hesitation as to, God, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure this doesn't feel right. 99 out of a hundred times, it's not the right thing to do. So you've, you've always got to take that philosophy of, of, am I doing the right thing? Not what somebody else would do. Not, not like the peer pressure tends to be, uh, tends to be too much these days. If, if you, you've got to be able to, to take what you believe in and execute on what you believe in. And if you believe that's the right thing to do, then it ultimately will be the right thing to do. Uh, no different than than uh, taking taking our two year old grandson into our care. We knew it was the right thing to do. Not the easiest thing to do. That's not relevant. It's the right thing to do. And so so it really comes down to that. And that that's a lesson for anything, any decisions or any any uh, process that you go through in life. Are you doing the right thing for the right reasons? That makes sense. Love that. I think that you nailed it. Tell me around, you know, you mentioned just kind of feeling, do you have a good gut feel around things? Do you, do you feel that sometimes in your gut literally? And do you have that for you? I have enough, I have enough patience that sometimes I won't, I I won't do a, uh, you know, that uh, first impressions thing. I try not to go too hard on my first impression. Others, others will do that. I, I have a tendency to give them a second or third, I won't say give them a second or third chance but listen harder or give them the opportunity to prove themselves. So you honor a process that you have for yourself. You've become aware of it, which is to not make, you know, not take first impressions and make harsh judgments unless you're really clear on what those might be, but you'll, yeah. you'll step back and give it some thought and, and go through the process that you need to go through. And we've done that before, even you and I, when, when you bring something or I bring something to you, I'll always say, let me sit on it for a day. You do. I always want to reflect on it. I always want to be able to say, cause it clarifies how and what might happen. If I make a snap decision right now with you on something, nine times out of 10, I'll probably regret it. Not because it's the wrong decision, but because I hasn't, I, then I don't process it. Right. If I process it 
and then make the decision. Then I know, then I have a better sense of the direction of where we're going or what the decision means to everything that, that comes along with it. Totally in a different direction. You talked about golf courses and you own the Airdrie Golf Course. Yep. Woodside Golf Course. Woodside Golf Course in Airdrie. So you're a scratch golfer? No. (laughs) (laughs) I've been a 12 handicap for the last 25 years. That's not a bad golfer. That's not not a bad golfer. golfer, I'm not a a scratch golfer by any means. Um, My dad and I loved our games of golf. I mean, we spent a lot of time on the golf course. Uh, I still don't have a hole in one. He had three. He shot his age at 79. So he was the one that really got me into the game of golf and loving the game of golf. And, and partly because it's the one sport, he was only five foot two. And so he was never a great athlete to begin with. He's a good skier. Um, I took him heli skiing for his 80th birthday. Wow. Most people are blown away by that. But back to the golf side, he loved the game of golf because it's the one game where he could be competitive. If you used your handicap, because he loved to play, even if it was just for a cup of coffee or a, a tuning. He loved to know that he could beat you at the game of golf. You know, the winner always buys lunch at the end of the day. He might win two bucks on the golf course and spend 50 bucks on lunch for you. And he was still the happiest guy because he won that $2. I'm exactly <laughs> the same way. That's why I love the game of golf. It's because we can all sit there and be competitive. It's the only game that I know of where you can sit there and be competitive with three other players, unless it's a Tiger Woods or a, oh, sure. uh, you know, uh, that's, that's a different scenario, but the average four people getting together on the golf course can all compete. My, uh, cause just to share a quick story, my you know, Stephanie, my wife heard dad, who's now 88, um, has had in his golfing life, which he's golfed at the Highlands golf and country club in Edmonton for a number of years. I think he's had seven hole in ones and at, wow. at uh, at 85, he continues to either golf or beat his age. And that just cracks me wow. up. So, but he's on the course three and four days a week, all summer long. And yeah, but still at 85, that's, I know. that's great. I know. Isn't that crazy? So, yeah. And, uh, and of course the joke in the family is that he's only ever invited me to golf with him once because I'm not good enough. So <laughs> we always have some laughs around those little family jokes. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, uh, in the world of business, Rado, once again, you, your accomplishments are admirable, admirable. You're a big part of the community. You sit on a number of different boards. And, but before we get to even that, um, if we do, was there, was there a tipping point? Do you think for you in business, was there some place where you feel like I've made it? Does it ever get to you that for you? No, not really. <laughs> maybe I'm still looking ahead. We're still looking forward because it comes back to this. I'm never planning on retiring. So there's, there's no tipping point. I, I mean, I, it comes with confidence and knowing that, that we'll get through situations when they're harder or when they're, when, when there's things that present themselves, we've been doing this for so long. We just, we find solutions to whatever that might be. And so when did I know that I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that there's a specific tipping point. Right. Well, once again, it's, it's you know, as, as we look into the context for the everyday millionaire, it really is about interviewing and having conversations with people, you know, seemingly ordinary people who've 
achieved extraordinary results. And the path and the journey to have the success that many people aspire to have. And, but also to just to share in, in your own experience with listeners. And, you know, my job as, you know, the person asking the questions in the interview is to try and draw out of you those little nuggets that people can pick up on because you have gone before, you know, you're not, um, you, you've achieved some big results that are not common and in your world, they probably are, or perhaps they are. I don't know. The, is, do, you, do, you, do you find yourself comparing yourself? That just kind of raised a question for me. Do you live in a world of comparing yourself often? No, never. It, it's, it's not about it because it's not a competition for, for me. I, I'm not trying to beat the guy around the corner. Uh, I'm trying to do something that I love to do, that I get up every morning, and I'm excited to uh, dig in and do what we do. Because it's never the same. It, there's not a single day that's ever the same as the day before. And, and that's the exciting part is, is we're, we're constantly experimenting. We're constantly innovating. Um, one of my philosophies, even at the golf course, which is a, a pretty steady kind of predictable business, is if it's not broken, break it. Find another way to do it. Figure out something new. Try something. Um, and, and so that's what, that's what we're all about is, is being passionate about what we, what we uh, dig into every day. When did you meet your partner? You know, he, he he's great on the construction side, as you said. How long have you guys been partners in doing what you're doing? Well, I've known him since we were 15 years old. Wow. So we he's he's had many successful businesses over the year as well. And uh, it wasn't until we, we, uh, we had a project that we were doing up in Invermere. He decided that he was going to be in the construction business. And I said, well, hey, come and bid this project. And I'll make sure that uh, if you're competitive, that you'll get the job. We've never looked back since then. That would have been 18 years ago. Since then, we've just sort of merged ourselves into in developments and several other companies, and uh, and moved along the way there. What's your? Uh, do you guys have a kind of a key to success in your world of being partners? Because partnerships are common in business uh, for all the reasons that they are. But what's the, what's the do, you, do you guys have a kind of a philosophy or a magic formula for being great partners? No, I, I would suggest that uh, in fairness, he knows his strengths and I know, and we both know each other's strengths is the, is the best way to put it. And we let ourselves focus on those strengths. He's the one, he is, he is very, very strong on the construction side and I'm very strong on the design side. So we let each other do what, what we know we're capable of doing. Is there the inevitable disagreements? Do you guys disagree on much? And if you do, how do you handle oh, of it? Of course. Of course. Okay, of great. Course. So tell me, how do you handle it? Are you are you straight shooters or do you dance around it? Do you how do you uh, no, we'll 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 go to Vegas and, and get silly for a couple of days. <laughs> and that seems to make it all go away. Yeah. Vegas, Palm Springs. We both have a place in Palm Springs. Uh, so we just yeah. So basically it's around communication though. I'm assuming that you guys can, absolutely. you know, you can yeah. do what you need to do. You can yell it out, argue it out, but ultimately it break, it boils down to having great communication. We ultimately know each other pretty well when we've known each other since we were 15, we've done a lot of things over the years. So, you know, each other's uh, patterns and blind spots perhaps. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's great. But you're so, absolutely right. It's never an easy. It's never an easy thing to do. But so neither is a marriage. It's like a marriage. You have to work on it. Most people think that he and I are married, um, but <laughs> we we try and stay away from that one. Yeah, that's great. 
So, okay. So as we wind down, you know, I, I like to kind of go to a couple of, you know, consistent rapid fire questions and um, keep it tight. What's your favorite swear word? My favorite swear word. Yeah. Really? You have to think about I, it right I, now? I, well, Are you well, kidding me right now? Favorite? <laughs> like you don't a have favorite a favorite word? go-to? No, not really. Really? Yeah. You, okay. Okay. Well, if you don't, you don't. I'm surprised by that. You know, that's all. <laughs> there you go. If you weren't doing this, what would you attempt to do? If there was another profession, what would you think you'd do? Oh my goodness. How many, how many, how many choices do I have? You, well, there's so many great, there's so many great things to do. Give me the uh, top I, one. I, uh, out of the out of the top ones, I certainly would not want to be a lawyer. I don't envy those poor guys at all. Right. Um, I would love to work in the aeronautics. I think that'd be a cool area. <laughs> uh, given what I given what I know today, like space, space travel. Sure. Um, you want to be a rocket scientist? I can hear, it. I can see it in your voice, and hear yeah. it in your voice. Yes. Right. Right. A scientist of some sort that just would sit there and invent and tinker and and right. Brilliant. The Alexander Bell of uh, of the 2017s. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm an atheist, so that makes that one kind of tough to answer. Well, um, just if he did. But I'll 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 make this uh, I'll, I'll switch this around a little bit. There was a a famous New Yorker cartoon. The dog is at the pearly gates, and he looks at God, and he, and and God says. Ask exactly the same question. The dog goes, I'd like my balls back. <laughs> uh, okay. That's, that's pretty funny. On a scale of 1 to 10, after that, on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? How weird am I? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to say I'm certainly on the upper half. Yeah, I would agree with let's, that. Let's give it a 7.5 to 8. Okay, I can support that. What are you not very good at? What am I not very good at? Ironically, communicating. Huh? After all that. Yeah. I don't always communicate well. Okay. I can see that too. Um, I'm just agreeing with you. I'm doing my best to just concur yeah. on all things, Rado. <laughs> Room, desk, or car? What are you going to clean first? Uh, the car. You like a clean car? Do you drive, right. a, do you drive a fancy car? Are you a... Are you a, a, a decent car. Yeah. 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 What's your, uh, what's S, your ride? S5, S5 Audi convertible. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah it's a, actually dirty right now. And I was, I'm, I'm twitching just, just having this conversation. <laughs> you know, you gotta get a wash. <laughs> you got a favorite, uh, you got a favorite tune? Uh, a favorite artist, Van Morrison. Tupelo Honey would be the best of his, but there are so many of the, his, of his songs that are great. I would pick the artist rather than the song. You're, are you a bit of a music file? I don't, I don't play any instruments. I don't sing or anything like that, but I love music. Yeah. Yeah. I love music. Yeah. yeah. I recall that. What's your favorite movie? Uh, Dead Poets Society. And what are you most grateful for? Living in this country. Yeah. That was apparent right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll give you the favorite book too, because I think that's important. Sure. That's a Atlas. great question. I'm going to add that. Atlas Shrugged. Ayn Rand, it was, it was written in the 50s, yeah. 1950s, um, a brilliant book. Tell me about if it. What you is... talk to, if you talk to, um, there, there's, a, there's a survey that was done that's a number of years ago 
they surveyed the top 500 CEOs of, uh, of the United States and they asked what their favorite book was. More of what their favorite, more of them picked Atlas Shrugged than the Bible. They thought that a lot of people would pick the Bible. Right. Uh, almost 80. I, I can't remember what the exact stats are, but it was a majority of them that picked that book. Well, I'm, I'm just really feeling naive right now and a little bit dumb. What What is that book about? Because I, I, I feel like I should know about it. It's a story about uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was a, a woman that came out of Russia when she was a child and and sort of had the taste of communism at the time and then wrote several books. This was not her first book. She's written several books, but she is uh, hugely popular. She's almost a cult figure. Uh, she passed away in 19, I want to say about 1980, but yeah. you can still go to any bookstore today and find that book. Cool. I'm going to, I've just made a note to uh, look at that one. So that's great. Well, listen, Rado, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Lots of takeaways in this conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was it was fun. I know that uh, in your I'm Not the Best Communicator in the World, you did a great job today, and uh, I, I appreciate what you bring to the table. I'm, I really do feel blessed and honored to know you and have gotten to know you over the past couple of years, particularly, and of having had you on the stage with Rain. I know where you come from, and and uh, the feedback we've gotten from individuals that have talked to you has always been very, very positive. So I appreciate what you bring to the table and what you brought today to this conversation. So thanks very much for that. Well, it's an honor to be uh, invited. Yeah, well, that's great. Now, uh, go wash your car, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and happy Canada Day. You too, pal. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.